Welcome to the Democratic Campaigns Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, in Chicago, speaking to you every week with candidates, managers, operatives, volunteers, strategists, and regular people working to build the Democratic Party back to our governing majority. Today, I'm delighted to be joined from upstate New York with uh, Leslie Danks Burke, uh, attorney, former congressional candidate, former state senate candidate, and currently founder and president of Trailblazers PAC. Leslie, thanks for being on the show. I'm delighted. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. Leslie, uh, in a, um, from your perspective, what's the big picture for the Democratic Party as we're heading into to the 2018 elections? The Democratic Party has to get back to its roots, and we have to go back to being the party of the small guy, and we have to do that by making sure that we are reaching out to voters everywhere, uh, not just in large urban centers, not just in the demographics that we've traditionally performed well with, but all across the board with anybody whose voice has been left out. And you know, I'm I'm not alone in saying that. There's a lot of people talking about that, uh, but. We're very proud in upstate New York, in rural upstate New York, that we've started an organization that's focused on that. And so for folks that are in red or rural areas, what are some of the things that you found helps connect people that previously have not thought of themselves as a Democrat or somebody that votes for Democratic candidates? What have you found has been a good tipper technique to get them to do so? Well, I think that the real challenge that we have is that we have to get back to going to the voter and reaching voters uh, where they live, literally. Um, I've started an organization called Trailblazers Pack, uh, whose mission is front porch politics. We're bringing politics out of the back room onto the front porch through an innovative community fundraising model uh, that really gets voters engaged back with democracy. I think so we need to you know, focus again on grassroots canvassing, on making sure that you're going door to door and and hitting every single voter that's possible and also getting voters invested in literally in campaigns by asking them to become small dollar contributors how is that hard ask for getting the small checks or small contributions um, how has that been and how do people get over their fear or intimidation or taboo or whatever it is that stops them from either asking or forgiving <laughs> That's a really interesting question. And, you know, I had to get over that personally because I, I was a candidate for state senate in the 2016 cycle. And uh, obviously, 2016 was not a good year for Democrats. But we were pretty proud in my race that our team garnered. 45% of the vote in a district that's registered only 32% Democratic. And I, I really believe that that is not candidate driven, that when you have that sort of success, and, and we do consider it a success to get 13 points over the base Democratic registration uh, in 2016, when you have that sort of success, it's the result of an entire team operating well together. And that's because your message is connected to your fundraising. You're not saying different things to different groups of funders and you're also not saying different things to your voters than you're saying to your funders and when all of that message is integrated and it and it really um, resonates with the people who are voting to put you into office then you can have that sort of success rate where you you can reach across traditional party lines or traditional demographic lines so there's sort of the the Russ Feingold wing of the party, for lack of a better term, uh, is Paul Simon and Russ Feingold, those that said, look, 
taking big checks from corporate America is you know, maybe good in the short term, but it really kills us in November with uh, swing voters that are paying attention. Um, sure. Tell me how you can convince people that you've got to, you, you can't just expect the Democratic Party to exist. You've got to help buy it with your, you know, sort of honest money, so to speak. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really key, Dan, is that um, for those of us who are deeply concerned about the state of money in politics, and, and it's amazing what a majority of Americans that is, regardless of their political views, are, are really concerned about the idea that money has corrupted our political process. For those of us who are worried about that, uh, we really do need to begin investing in candidates who, um, who choose to forego the easy ways to raise money and instead focus on the small dollar way of raising money, which is frankly a lot harder. It's a lot easier to make one fundraising phone call to you know a max out donor than it is to make a hundred fundraising phone calls to small dollar donors. But in the long run, it pays off tremendously because those small dollars that you get from your in-district voters, that's a real investment. That's a real statement of trust by the voter in your campaign. And that person who makes that small dollar contribution is much more likely to then go out and tell other folks about why they're supporting you and make sure that they show up on, on election day. Does the math work? Can you really fund a campaign on small donors? So my district is a five-county district. It covers several hundred square miles. Uh, in fact, one of the counties is bigger than the state of Rhode Island. And so, you know, we were trying to reach voters all across this vast geographic territory. And the best way to do that, uh, it's not necessarily the cheapest, but the best is to have people on the ground who go door to door and reach folks individually in their rural communities. And, and so that's what we were investing in. So that $670,000 that I raised came 85% from voters in my district. And that's in contrast to the money that my opponent raised, which was very similar money, um, but 65% of his donations came from large corporations and from uh, PACs that you know often engage in transactional politics and just donate to whoever the incumbent is. So I believe, my team and I believed, that the reason we did as well as we did was because we invested in that sort of small dollar fundraising where the people who were supporting my campaign and voting for me were also literally invested in my race. And did they end up being sort of, on a month or two before the election, your, your some of your best volunteers? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really true, too. And, you know, so every dollar that came in in district, we considered that a very valuable dollar, worth a little bit more than an actual dollar, because that meant that that was someone who was going to go out there and spread the word about my campaign as well. Um, your district had, uh, you know, it's a red district, so... Um, what was it like trying to pitch the Democratic Party to um, pretty red people? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's always interesting how much more we have in common than divides us, but not everybody knows that right off the bat. Uh, Democrats certainly don't know it, and, you know, folks who are traditionally Republican might not know it either, and one of the you know, one of the stories that I've told is uh, the difference between introductions that I would get as a as a Democrat uh, being introduced by Democrats or as a Democrat being introduced by traditional Republican voters. Um, and one example is 
going to rod and gun clubs or conservation clubs, which I, I tended to visit pretty frequently because that's a way to reach out to voters that are traditionally outside the Democratic orbit. And, uh, you know, often when you go into a Democratic hall of some kind, maybe you're talking to a group of teachers union members or you're talking to, uh, a, you know, a Planned Parenthood board group, that's a group that's traditionally Democratic and they'll sort of sing your praises and tell all about the wonderful things about the candidate. But then <laughs> you walk into a rod and gun club and often the person who has very graciously agreed to introduce me um, might not want to broadcast that he or she you know is is a supporter of mine and so you get an introduction that's kind of like hi this is Leslie Danksburg and she's a Democrat and then they sit down really fast <laughs> <laughs> and you know then you have to rebound back from that and and be able to somehow figure out a way you can connect with your audience and so the way I always did that was to say look I'm here. I showed up. I came in the room and I'm here for as long as it's going to take uh, to get all of your questions answered and then I promise I'll come back. Uh, and I can't necessarily promise that the other guy is going to show up uh, or that he'll come back, but at least you've got me here to ask your questions of and that's certainly worth something. And then. You know, we, we all tried in the room. I could tell that the folks I was talking with would try too to figure out places that we had common ground. And, and it was always astounding how many places we did find that we had common ground. Sure, there may be an issue or two that we disagreed on, but often there were things that we could, we could find that we agreed on. And do you think you converted some of them? Do you think some of them were crossovers for you? Well, I, I, sure, because I, as I was driving around my district closer and closer to November, I would see yard signs, uh, you know, with my yard sign in the yard along with a Donald Trump yard sign in the yard. Oh, and, wow. uh, you know, I, I would hear from people that often they were supporting me and they were supporting Donald Trump because they felt that both of us were speaking very clearly about the concerns that they had, which are a lack of jobs in the region and a, and a lack of investment in working families and a lack of uh, attention to real world problems. And, and both Donald Trump and I were apparently perceived as really talking hard about that. Now, my contention is that I really meant it. And as far <laughs> as I can see, Donald Trump didn't really mean it. And he certainly hasn't done a heck of a lot to help people who are struggling uh, since he became president. So, you know, we have a challenge there. So what do you think would have made, uh, how, how did, could you get over the hump? Or how could your campaign get over the hump? I think that, you know, I think 2016 was an unusual year in that we had so many people uh, in red state areas who were voting uh, for the first time in years. We, you know, we, we vote um, by electronic ballot now in rural New York, but there were people who were showing up to the polling places who were saying things like, well, gosh, you know, what happened to the curtain and the lever that you pull and where's, where's the machine that I'm used to? You know, these were people who hadn't voted in 10 years. So we really saw a, a change in the demographics of who voted, and at the same time, Democrats stayed home this year. Um, to a larger extent than they usually do. And, and so that was problematic too. So I think 2016 was an interesting year, um, but I think what we need to do as a community, as a, as a whole country, is get more people voting, regardless of what political persuasion they are. And if we get more voices to the table and we don't worry so much about which voices they are, but just get everybody participating in the conversation, uh, we're gonna do better. 
And what, what did you find was one of the best uh, techniques you used to gin up more voters? Well, when I went door to door, I, uh, my team sent me only to Republican households and, and only to persuadable voters, starting from about June on. And I think that that is something that uh, candidates can do that maybe your regular volunteers or your regular staff people have a harder time doing. But as a candidate, when you show up on someone's doorstep, they're usually pretty pleased that you took the time to show up, even if they disagree with you. And so, you know, as a candidate, you have that extra persuasive power. You have the fact that you are the person asking for their vote. And so you're less likely to be shouted off the porch when you show up in a in a home that might not be a traditional base for you. So I would really advise, uh, you know, for Democrats who are running in counties or states where they might not be in the majority, to have the candidate themselves go to Republican households as much as possible. Leslie Danks-Burke is with us on the Democratic Campaigns Podcast. I'm Dan Johnson. The podcast is brought to you by Campaign Filer. CampaignFiler.com, political software for political campaigns, uh, live in Illinois, soon to be live with the feds, now with multi-user and multi-organizational features. Check it out at CampaignFiler.com. That's an interesting takeaway, Leslie, that uh, the candidate ought to sell to Republicans and others can mobilize the Democratic base and maybe do some uh, voter registration of the biggest chunk of voters who are the unregistered and the not voting. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with every piece of that except for the sell part. And I think that, you know, that might be one of the challenges that we have too is as a candidate, you're really not selling anything. What you're doing is try to trying to bridge divides. Hmm. You're trying to understand the message that the voters want you to carry for them and make sure that that message resonates with your core, that you're comfortable carrying that message, of course, Um, but then making sure that you you know enough to be able to advocate for that message. And you're not going to know enough if the only people you talk to are the people in your traditional base. You've got to reach out there and listen to the other side as well, because you might learn something. And... And, and so, you know, I think that as Democrats, we're often um, kind of tallying up the votes and thinking about how are we going to get to our win number, which obviously is, a, is an excellent campaign strategy, and that's what you want to do. Um, but to the extent that you can build your coalition by listening and by hearing what the other side has to say and figuring out how what you're offering actually helps that, um, you're, you're going to be better off in the long run. That's interesting. There's a political piece on Congresswoman Sherry Bustos from uh, the rural part of Illinois, in western Illinois, um, who, it's a Trump district and she won uh, pretty big. But the piece of it, uh, the part that I found most interesting is that she's, she's a former reporter and she would talk about how she would sort of try to report the story of the person that she's talking to or the group that she's talking to and really ask a billion questions to really understand uh, where this, what this person's going through, and what their life is like, uh, to and she really sought to understand that person's perspective. It sounds a little bit like what you're saying when you're uh, talking to Republicans is you're really trying to understand where they're coming from. Gosh, that that really resonates with me, and I know that Congresswoman Bustos has has done some good work there, and I think that's exactly right. That we need to 
as a country, as a people, really figure out how to listen to each other and, and how to come to consensus. Someone said to me recently, consensus is not unanimity. Consensus is enough agreement to move forward. And I think that we need to really take that to heart and recognize that we may not be 100% in agreement on everything, but we have enough agreement to move forward and uh, figuring out how we achieve that. I think uh, it, it's almost a female characteristic. Uh, it, it, sometimes it's harder for males to do that. You know, that might be true. I, I don't know. Uh, I think that a lot of the people who are talking about this are female. A lot of the activists who have risen to the fore since last November are female. It's extraordinary how many women are stepping into leadership positions, running for office. Uh, you know, from my own vantage point, now running a PAC that is working across New York State and Pennsylvania to encourage more candidates to run for local office and to really find candidates who stand for clean government and who are willing to run for town board or village council or local mayor or whatever it is uh, to build that pipeline. Um, lots and lots of those candidates turn out to be female right now and I, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think they tend to do, they do better in November whenever the election is, I've found. Um, but for whatever reason, females tend sometimes have less internal. Men are just like, sure, I'll do it. Of course, why not me? And <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm good enough. I think <laughs> women are, women are programmed from birth to have a little bit more self doubt, maybe. Yeah, right. Well, we got to work on that. We got a cultural thing we got to work on. There you go. Uh, Leslie Dakes Burke, um, thank you for being on the podcast Democratic Campaigns. I'll tell you, I think having the candidate. Um, spend a lot of his or her time uh, talking directly with uh, Republicans it seems to be a great takeaway to craft and hone a message that resonates with uh, a good majority of the electorate. Um, and it's just something that is a, a powerful thing that a volunteer or a surrogate can't, can't do. You can't beat that candidate saying, I'm on your front porch or I'm in your kitchen. Tell me what you think. Yeah.